And thanks so much to Laura for filling in today in Dean's absence and those who have been leading us in our worship of God. In a previous series here in Connor, when we were looking at the book of Judges, we acknowledged what some people say, and that is that you should never meet your heroes. And I've heard lots of stories of people who got to meet celebrities that they adored or admired only to leave feeling disappointed or let down when they got to see what they were really like. King David is one of the great Bible heroes, but what would you make of him if you got to see him up close? Today, we continue to look together in God's Word at the life of David, of whom the Lord said that he was a man after his own heart. David had a heart for God. He shared the Lord's outlook. And given that David was a man after God's own heart, makes the events that we read here in 2 Samuel 11 all the more shocking and disappointing. How could a Bible hero, a man after God's heart, a man who was called by God, who shared the Lord's outlook, behave in such a despicable way? That's what we want to find out today, so that we can be warned and instructed by this passage. But as we do that, remember that ultimately the Bible is good news. It is gospel. It's not simply an instruction manual, but it is a good news story of how God rescues sinful people like us. So, as we look at King David, we are always keeping an eye on what and who lay ahead. We're always placing our focus on that much greater king who would descend from David, King Jesus. And inevitably today, he will be the ultimate focus of our look at God's Word together. And I want you to see, despite the horror of the events that we read together a few moments ago, that ultimately what we are thinking about from God's Word is a hopeful message. You might think, where is there any hope in what we have just read? But that's why it's important that we follow the sequence over the next few weeks. Today, we look at David the sinner as we look at this real car crash of a chapter, 2 Samuel 11. But then next week, we're going to think about David the repentant sinner as we continue in the next chapter and as we also consider what David wrote about his repentance in Psalm 51. And even that is not the end of the story because in a few weeks' time, we'll tie all of this up by thinking about the reality of David, the forgiven sinner, as we look at another of his Psalms, Psalm 32, where David expresses his gratitude to God for the forgiveness that he experiences in his life. So, with all of that in mind, turn with me again, please, in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 11, as today we consider David the sinner. And we have to say that this is a pretty sordid and sad story. What can we learn from this chapter of Scripture? Well, as a kind of preliminary, I think we can learn this important thing. It's a chapter that is a great reminder to us that God's Word is concerned with the truth. We know that God's Word 
is truth, and we need to understand that it always, always tells the truth, so that we might read or listen to a chapter like 2 Samuel 11, and we could come away feeling disillusioned, feeling confused. What is going on there? What is that doing in the Bible? Is this the way that the Bible characters are meant to live? What kind of a book is this anyway? But rather than diminishing our confidence in the Bible as God's Word, what we read here, the inclusion of this story should actually increase our confidence in the trustworthiness of the Bible as God's Word. So that if we think about another royal figure who, who has been making the news recently, Harry, with his autobiography, Spur. And one of the things that I've been struck by as I've listened to all of the endless debate in the media about this book is how many people are talking about Harry's truth. They say, well, this is his truth, and if William wants, William can give us his truth, and Charles can give us his truth. And that's how our society has been conditioned to think that truth is a subjective thing, that truth is your version of the story. In this age of spin, in this time of PR, it's amazing that we have a book in the Bible recording the life of a great Bible hero who was a man after God's own heart, and yet it includes a terrible moment in his life like this. Because if that was our book, well, surely we would want to delete that scene or at least make ourselves come across in a slightly better light than David does here in 2 Samuel 11. But it's not our book. This is God's book. It's His Word. And there are no lies. There are no cover-ups. It is truth. It tells the truth. And that can give us great confidence each and every time we turn to it, and it can give us great confidence in the one that it is ultimately pointing to, King Jesus. So, with that in mind, what then do we see in this chapter? Well, the first thing that we're struck by as we look at these events is the great power of temptation. And I want you to remember who David is as we consider this sorry story. Remember that David is one of God's people. He is that man after God's own heart. He was someone who had a real trust in the Lord. And it reminds us that God's people are not immune from the danger of temptation. Later in the, the New Testament, Paul, as an apostle and believer of Jesus, understood and lamented this in Romans chapter 7, verse 19. Look at that verse. And David, talking about his own life, says, for I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. I'm not much of a golfer, and I gave up trying to play golf a long, long time ago, but my brother, who was here last week, he's a keen golfer. He can hit a ball very, very far. And sometimes he would drag me out to play with him, especially if we're both up at the North Coast. And we would play at that wee course, the council course, 
between Port Rush and Port Stewart Ballyray. And there's one of the, the holes there, and you stand on the tee, and there's the fairway. If you're not a golfer, that just nice stretch of grass in front of you leading up to the green and the pin. And then there's this big bank of grass, long, thick grass over to the left. And it doesn't matter how many times I line myself up and my brother says, yeah, just turn right a wee bit and gets me all lined up. The ball inevitably always goes straight left right into the middle of that thick grass, never to be seen again. Why is it that we're sucked into sinful scenarios? Well, it's the power of temptation. And people, that is why we are in such great need of God's grace and rescue. Look at the case of David here in in 2 Samuel 11, and where all of this starts in verse 2. We read there, one evening David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And I think we learn a couple of things from this scenario. First of all, we learn that sin corrupts and pollutes good things. In this case, sexual desire. And I know we don't talk a lot about sexual desire in Connor on a Sunday morning, but it is a God-given thing. And we should acknowledge that honestly. It is a thing that God has given to people for their good in the right setting. But the problem is this was not the right setting. This woman was not David's wife. She was the wife of another. And we need to be really clear, David knew that. He understood that. This was not an unfortunate mistake. This was a willful thing on David's part. And I think the other thing that we learn from this verse is that David was vulnerable to temptation when he was at rest. His guard was down. He was the commander-in-chief of the military forces. This was the time of the year, springtime, and all the kings were out for a good old scrap, and he should have really been at the fore leading his people out, but instead he left it to Joab, and David was back in Jerusalem chilling out. And it was there in his chill-out time that temptation struck. And it gets us thinking, doesn't it? It is instructive for us. Are there times of the evening or in the calendar? Are there times in the year when we might be more susceptible to temptation and therefore we need to be on high alert? I love Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher's brilliant devotional on this chapter. He begins by saying that self-confidence is the armor-bearer of sin. And then he talks about how the evil one, Satan, who is the instigator of temptation, can strike when we least expect it. And he says of Satan, even if we could shut out that foul fiend, our own corruptions, in other words, our own sinful nature is enough to work our ruin unless grace prevents it. We need a watchman for the night as well as a guardian for the day. And then he prays, O blessed Spirit, keep us from all evil this night. 
And I wonder today, as you look at David in this chapter, can you maybe see parallels with your own life? Times of vulnerability, dangers that can lead to sin, gateways into sin, pornography, inappropriate conversations, misuse of social media. Well, people, how we need God's rescuing grace. But maybe as you're following this so far, and I realize we've only got two verses in, don't panic. But maybe as you look at this verse and you follow the thread of this sermon, you think, well, Philip, hang on, just relax. Because if God forgives sin, then why all of the fuss? What exactly is the problem with verse 2? There's no harm in looking. Well, then we need to consider the spiral of sin. And here now, we move much more quickly through this passage because we want to scan down, down it very quickly. And I want you to consider the horrible chain of events that unfold in chapter 11. It begins in verses 3 and 4. And within those verses, actually, the sequence is very important. We need to see that David understood that this woman was Uriah's wife. And yet he still summons Bathsheba in order to sleep with her. And I know it takes two to tango, but really think about it. You know, in the time of the Me Too movement, we look back at this and we think, here is David the king, summoning this woman to his chambers. What choice did she have? And then in verse 5, Sometime later, the bombshell that Bathsheba is pregnant, and David is clearly the father. And as Uriah, her husband, has been off at war, then there is the risk of exposure. So, in verses 6 to 13, the cover-up begins, and David comes up with a plan. He orders Uriah back from battle. He wines and dines him. He gets him nice and relaxed, and then he encourages him to head home and to spend the night with his wife, Bathsheba. That way, he would presumably go to bed with her, and when he discovers that Bathsheba is pregnant, we'd think, well, no problem there. I know when that happens. But there's a problem with the plan. Despite two efforts, the cover-up doesn't go according to plan. As beautiful as his wife is, Uriah won't go home to her. And why? Well, look at verse 11. And he says the ark and the significance of this because the ark is the place associated with God's presence and God's law. Do you see the irony? The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents. And my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open fields. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. What an irony that it is Uriah's faithfulness to the king. It's his loyalty to his men that actually leads to this plan failing. So that, that, so that then if you look on down to verses 14 to 25, once this planned cover-up failed, the events of the rest of the chapter become all the more sinister. David, fearful of exposure and scandal, opts for the nuclear option. He looks at, at, look at what David resorts to. Look at what he writes to Uriah, Uriah's commander Joab in verse 15. Look at these words again. 
The instruction is put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die. Now, that's the ultimate way to rid yourself of a problem. But how could David, the songwriter, David who penned such sweet verses of praise to the Lord, write something like this? It is an incredible reminder of the power of sin, the terrible spiral further and further away from God's will and God's Word. And we need to be aware of this, wise to this. Oh, how we need God's protecting grace. And do you think that you're somehow above all of this? Oh, that could never happen to me. I could never fall into any kind of sin. This is not something that I need to bring before the Lord. Remember Spurgeon's words, self-confidence is the armor bearer of sin. But maybe you're still thinking, well, Philip, this is 2023. Times have changed. What's the problem? And after all, God is a God of grace. With Him, there is much mercy, and there is. But we can't look at this passage without considering the terrible consequences of sin. And we will think much more about this next week when we consider David the repentant sinner. But while there is full forgiveness for David, when he repents and turns to the Lord, there are lasting consequences for him, his family, and his nation. And we need to know that, yes, there is full forgiveness in Jesus Christ, and we say amen to that. Every part totally forgiven, the full price paid for by Him through His death. But our sin can result in such carnage. Lifelong consequences for us, our family, our church, And so, we need to finish by considering one other thing from this passage, and that is the seriousness of sin. We focused a lot on the opening verses of the chapter, but we need to also take a very close look at the final verse. Just read the first part of verse 27, and as you do that, you could be tempted to think, well, what exactly is the fuss? We read, after the time of mourning was over, David had Bathsheba brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. And when you read that, you think, well, you know what? It may be an inconvenient truth, but you have to say the plan worked a treat. He got Bathsheba for himself in the end. They had their child, and presumably they lived happily ever after. He got away with it. But folks, we don't ignore the second part of verse 27, and how it is that this chapter ends. We read, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. What David had done 
displeased the Lord? People, this is the bottom line. This is the seriousness of sin. This is its huge problem. And no matter how much it seems that we have got away with it, that it's not that bad after all, our sin displeases God. And that's why we are here. That's what life is all about. We have been put into this world for God's glory and His pleasure. I wonder, does that even come into your reckoning? Does it come into my reckoning when we are confronted with temptation and the opportunity to sin? That this displeases God. It makes me subject to His judgment and discipline. And if we were to end here today, where would be the hope? I can't speak for you. I can only speak for myself, but I suspect you're the same. If we end here, then all that happens is we go home and we feel crushed and defeated. But remember that in this series, we are keeping our eyes fixed on a much greater King, Jesus. The one who was sinless and therefore the one who is worthy to save us. Peter, quoting the Old Testament Scriptures in 1 Peter 2, tells us this. First of all, in verse 22, he says of Jesus, he committed no sin, and no deceit was found in him. He continues in verse 24, he, that is Jesus, himself bore our sins in his body, on the cross, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By His wounds, you have been healed. And folks, there is the hope for struggling sinners like us. For all the reasons that we have identified from this chapter, sin is bad news. Flee from it repent of it. Seek God's forgiveness for it. And that healing and that help to conquer sin are found in Jesus, the greatest King of all. Amen.